Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Markets selling off today. A lot of folks are asking themselves this morning, is this a you know, a healthy pullback in an otherwise uh, upward biased market, or is this something uh, different? Let's check in with Sylvia Jablonski, Chief Investment Officer for Defiance ETFs. So Sylvia, when you see action like this today, what do you make of it? We haven't seen it too often, these types of pullbacks in this uh, recent bull market. What do you make of it? Good morning. Um, I, you know, I think today is is partially a result of what we're hearing in, in China. You know, Hong Kong equities saw a big sell-off during the Asia trading session. Um, Europe followed suit. You have the um, Evergrande Group issue that I think brought some some fear and volatility to the market. But, you know, there are a couple other things going on. You still have COVID cases. You still have, you know, the idea that September is the worst track record for for any month historically, and the second half of it tends to be, you know, worse than the first and, and certainly the worst trading period of the year. And then there's the concern about D.C. and, and raising the debt ceiling and, you know, sort of t- corporate tax fears and things like that. So, you know, long story short, I think that there are a lot of reasons why there's volatility in the market. But, you know, I remain very bullish on on the market in the year. The fundamentals are good. We're in economic recovery. And I think days like today, you know, if you can sort of grin and bear it, I think it's a great day to, to buy on the dips, particularly in the in the top quality names. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that this is the beginning of, of sort of the end. I mean, the, the biggest pullback we've seen in the last couple of years is, is you know, 4%. The average pullback of the S&P 500 is about 14, 15% over time. So it, it's really not that bad. It's a little bit of volatility in the market for various reasons. Are you still bullish when you look at... Um the progress or lack thereof on the infrastructure bill. I mean, the idea that fiscal spending from this government has added three, four, five, six percentage points per quarter for the last, you know, four or five quarters, and that now that fiscal um, kind of punch bowl may be empty, isn't that a worry for markets? You know, I think that a lot, a lot of the um, corporations within the in the market that are essentially leading the market um, are are just just cash heavy. You know, they have incredibly strong balance sheets. Um, I, I think that you know they're they're sort of well positioned. So even if that spending isn't coming into the market to the level it was before, I do expect them to have. You know, perhaps they won't have sixty percent year over year revenue growth, but I still expect them to be uh, in the green for for the coming years. And, you know, rates remain very low. I think that even if we get to a point where we start getting announcements about tapering, don't forget that rates remain very low. So if you have this combination of strong balance sheets and low rates and, you know, continued demand, strong consumer, I mean, the retail numbers were phenomenal. They're they're um, 10% higher than, than than the pre-COVID period. So you've got this consumer spending out there. I, I think it's still a fairly rosy picture. You know, what could set it back, though, I think will be uh, any kind of, you know, corporate taxation that, that is that is really negative towards the bottom line. Um, I, I think, you know, depending on what long-term and short-term capital gains taxes look like for individuals, that might impact the market. But overall, I expect to see the market end up and, and continue to, to, to move in a robust way. So, Sylvia, you were suggesting, you know, in sell-offs like we're seeing this morning to, uh, to buy on that weakness. What sectors would you be buying here um, on this type of weakness? 
Yeah. So, you know, so that this morning I looked at, um, I looked at the five, five G trade, which, which I love, you know, I think five G is the future. You've got these, you have these companies, which are span from telecom, um, to radio technology to semiconductors. So, um, you have the five G ETFs, you have everything from like the NVIDIA's, um, the AMDs, the, the stocks like Nokia, um, you know, and American Tower. I think that, 5G is the future, augmented reality, AI, data processing, all of all of this relies on 5G. I also think that it's a good time to look at crypto. I think that, you know, it's it's suspiciously um, getting sort of a hammer today in, in regards to what we saw coming out of China. And, uh, you know, I'm very bullish on the long-term price of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, you know, I think NFTs are going to propel all of this forward, too. So I think particularly for investors that have some risk tolerance and they're excited about the crypto space, you know, when you see these pullbacks, um, there, there are certainly good opportunities to get in if you haven't had the opportunity to do so. Um, what do you think about the housing market right now? Does that worry you, Sylvia? Because um, it's not just a, it, the the case in the U.S. that prices have soared. I mean, 30 percent. There's a story on the Bloomberg today talking about um, the housing prices in the U.S. up 30 percent since the mid 2000s when, you know, Michael Burry was sitting in front of his computer listening to Metallica, placing short bets on um, the market. Should we be worried that this housing market has gone too far too fast in New York, London, Paris, Berlin? I, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's something that we should sort of sit back and, and think on in terms of like, if, if you're a buyer in the market now looking to buy a home, I mean, chances are that you're going to overpay for it. You've seen, you know, people all over the world sort of sitting on their hands in terms of buying a home, you know, and I think it depends on where, yep. right? Like, I mean, I live in New York City. I actually think you do have deals in the city, but you definitely right. don't have deals in like Westchester when people are trying to flee. So it's sit on your hands and wait until it falls a little bit. I, I do think they're a little bit inflated. Hey, Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Sylvia Jablonski, Chief Investment Officer for Defiance ETFs. She's out with the call this morning. Buy this dip. Jose Herrera. He is one of the founders and the CEO of Horatio, which is a company that helps um, improve the customer experience of startups and small businesses, which maybe had been having problems. And it's interesting, especially now, I think, because of not the supply chain shortage so much as the labor shortage and the changes that we've seen during the pandemic. Jose, um, talk to us first about your business and how it's developed throughout uh, throughout this this difficult period. Thank you for having me today, and, and it's a pleasure to talk to you both today. Um, yeah, so Horatio is a company that works with um, fast-growing e-commerce brands to enhance their customer experience and provide a dedicated team of associates that are proud to represent their brand values and voice and ultimately mitigate any customer frustrations that may arise as part of the shopping process. And so, as you mentioned, uh, we are having significant issues with global ports shutting down across the world. And now with the holiday season, we are also expecting a lot of issues when it comes to significant shipping delays from FedEx and other delivery partners. And so we are working with all these fast-growing e-commerce brands to prepare themselves for the busy holiday period uh, that's coming uh, in a couple of weeks. So, Jose, does the customer experience, it's become more and more automated. It's almost impossible to reach a human these days. And I, I got to think that results in, if I'm just representative of the general consumer, tremendous frustration. What are some of the solutions you guys are thinking about? 
Yeah, and I think that's exactly the reason why Horatio exists. We are uh, the perfect balance between leveraging AI and also the human touch. So we provide dedicated teams and of humans that are proud to represent these companies' brand values and voice. So we provide first-hand personalized omni-channel customer support so that the customers can reach out through whatever channel they want, whether it's chat, email, SMS, which nowadays uh, more, more than 30, 70% of consumers want to ask questions through text. And so we allow these uh, consumers to reach out through the preferred method of their choice, but leveraging both AI and the human touch to provide an amazing customer experience. You know, I don't know if it's because I'm old, but I'm guessing Paul is going to agree with me. <laughs> I want to call a place and talk to a human straight away. I don't want to be uh, doing some chat bot action where the thing has no idea what I need or can't meet my demands. I don't want to be sending an email where I know I'm not going to get a response back. Um, but isn't it difficult to get a call center up and running? I mean, how do you get someone who knows about the product and, um, you know, can speak not just English, but whatever language uh, customers are calling in and, and, can in and can deal with the customer intelligently? Definitely. It's extremely important to, to, number one, as a brand, be very proactive with your customers so that you mitigate the, the risk of, of, of needing uh, a huge call center operation. And that's why we leverage the other channels that I mentioned, which are easier to manage and scale, like SMS, uh, social media, email. So you have to anticipate any challenges that your consumers may expect from you, and then also have, like you mentioned, uh, availability through phone if needed. Um, so with a lot of the brands that we work with, we provide a concierge-level approach to phone. So if we are not able to fix your issue over the other channels, we allow you to schedule a call for 15 minutes so that you know that we are going to be calling you at a specific time so you don't have to wait in line, particularly now a day when uh, we are seeing unprecedented numbers of, of customer inquiries. And now with the holiday period coming... Ho Jose, what's the, what's the size of your customer base? I mean, how quickly could you scale up? Would it be possible for you to help, for example, the airlines? The airlines is a, is a, is a, is a huge challenge nowadays. I think that you know because of the way that they are structured, it will take months for them to, to, to really fix those issues. And I think that, um, you know, we are better set up for e-commerce, direct-to-consumer brands. I think that uh, airlines uh, have to fix a lot of issues and incorporate more AI and analytics to fix uh, their underlying historical issues that they've faced in the past. All right. So, uh, Jose, just in 30 seconds, how has the pandemic kind of changed your business and customer service in general? It has Definitely accelerated e-commerce uh, five years, right? I think that um, the pandemic uh, really shifted. I think that the number was some, something along the lines of like now 20% of, of sales happen online. And I think that before COVID, we were at 10% uh, of sales were happening online or even less. And so it has definitely accelerated uh, the need for uh, customer support across all organizations. And I think that we are not going to see uh, these stopping anytime soon. And I think that, you know, now that the holidays are coming soon, we are expecting a 50% uptick in, in customer uh, service inquiries. More people are going to need to use your services. Jose, thanks so much for joining us. Jose Herrera there, one of the founders and the CEO of Horatio, a company that helps e-commerce uh, businesses, tech businesses, tailored their customer experience, and we're going into a difficult period, they're going to need it. The talk has certainly uh, escalated as it relates to Taper, 
uh, the bond purchases from the Federal Reserve, maybe even raising some rates some point uh, in the foreseeable future. Yet I look at the 10-year, it's stuck at 1.32%, kind of where it's been for a long time. Let's check in with one of the pros in the fixed income markets to get a sense of what's going on. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of the Municipal Bond Group at Federated Hermes. Uh, RJ, the, the bond market's just like saying ho-hum, so what? I mean, how concerned are you about... The, you know, tapering these Fed purchases and then ultimately raising rates? Well, good morning. Um, the, the taper discussion has gone on for so long. It, it, it's, it's, it's almost baked in. Right. And I think the Fed has been bailed out. The Fed was very forward-looking in getting taper out there months in advance. World's different than 2013 when it just sort of came up. Um, so that's, you know, you got to congratulate the Fed on that part. Introducing the market to it over and over and over helps. But I think the Fed's also being helped by the simple fact that on the fiscal policy side, the amount of debt issuance in coming months is, is, is itself going to taper. So although the demand will go down from the Fed, that'll be partly offset by, by, by lesser issuance from the U.S. Treasury. Then you've also got some of the fiscal follies going on in Washington. We don't have a budget for next year. The debt ceiling thing looms over our heads. Everyone always thinks the debt ceiling shouldn't matter, but how often does a seated seated American president challenge the validity of an election they lost? You know, weird things can happen. And I think when weird things happen in Washington, and we are now facing another event risk in Washington, that might bring about some caution in the markets. Um, So that might be another reason why bond yields really aren't doing much, not to mention the Chinese news that that we're all talking about this morning. Well, and we just also had a great uh, conversation with Rich Miller about the fiscal cliff, um, this is an economy that's been juiced by trillions and trillions of dollars of fiscal spending that looks like it may come to an end. How do you uh, how do you input that into your uh, into your calculations? Um, I noticed uh, that that your federated or excuse me, Bloomberg this morning ran an article about this very point and, and looked at the Hutchins Center, which is a group out of the Brookings Institution, which tries to look at the cumulative impact of government spending and tax decisions, not just the GDP impact. You know, in GDP accounting, if the government cuts a check to you or me, that doesn't directly add to GDP. It only adds to GDP when we spend it, right? So the GDP accounting for government spending will often understate fiscal policy's influence. And to your point, Matt, the amount of influence has been massive. Think of the PPP loans, which were really grants. Think of all the checks cut to households. Trillions of dollars, right? So clearly, the government can't keep that spending pace up. It has to d- diminish on a sequential basis, and it already is expected to do so. The Hutchins Center does a great job of trying to quantify the, the, you know, the impact on GDP uh, of those changes, and they're clearly below the line. They're in the red in coming quarters, including the one we're in. So you have to wonder, can the Biden program in Washington, namely the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, as well as the infrastructure bill, which is so far proceeding on a bipartisan basis, how much will it offset that headwind? It's not going to give us another CARES Act. Those bills, are, are, are both of them, are over 10 years. You know, the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan were over a couple of quarters. So we are facing a fiscal policy headwind no matter how you cut it. The question is the degree in terms of how the Biden plan gets enacted or trimmed further in the coming months. So, RJ, you're head of the municipal bond group at Federated. How are you guys positioning your municipal bond portfolios? 
Um, we believe, well, first of all, Munis have had a very, very strong year. Uh, we've talked about that in the past. Um, the simple fact that ta- taxes were expected to rise, and now we have real proposals out of Washington. They're still just proposals that would raise marginal rates for, for individuals, especially high-income individuals, also higher capital gains rates and higher corporate tax rates. Um, are, you know, that's finally manifesting in, in the discussions in Washington. Munis, I think, expected that, and that's why muni ratios are all very low, uh, historically low, the ratio of a AAA muni yield to a AAA, uh, to a treasury yield these days, if you look at the Bloomberg series, you know, on the 10-year part of the curve is around 70%. That's unusually low, but that's pricing in those tax increases. Um, we've been pretty positive on munis all year to include within munis taking more credit risk. So high-yield munis have done extremely well. Uh, we've caught a good bit of that in all of our different strategies here at the company at Federated Hermes. Um, at this point, spreads are tight, like they are everywhere. There's not a lot of cheap assets left in munis or anywhere else, for that matter, uh, reflecting the, the Fed's highly accommodative monetary policy. Uh, so we're getting a little bit more cautious, not in the sense that we're heading for some sort of washout in munis, but we think the prospects of incremental outperformance from here aren't so great. Tight ratios, tight spreads. Uh, you know, at this point, you're sort of clipping coupon and trying to make up um, some good uh, idiosyncratic calls on security selection to, to eke out performance. RJ, always great uh, to talk to you. Really appreciate you joining us today as well. So, um, it's, I mean, it's interesting Municipal what we bonds? see in markets, markets today. Yep. Uh, but you don't I, – I mean, today is, I think, a, a little bit special, and we'll see tomorrow if it, if it continues on. So Yeah, I mean, uh, we had that, uh, you know, sell-off, but uh, kind of a little bit of a steadying here, here in, in midday. Yes, and also, I mean, uh, as I talked about at the top, I, we sometimes exaggerate exaggerate the you know the size of yeah. the sell-offs. You know. <laughs> it it's not work. even a two percent drop yet. No. So uh, yeah. at, at the worst point, R.J. Gallo is senior portfolio manager and head of the Muni Bond Group at Federated Hermes. They've got six hundred forty six billion dollars in assets under management, about a hundred and change in equities under management. So great to get his take. This is Bloomberg. Okay, well, we've certainly heard about income inequality, wealth inequality. How about housing inequality? The big take story today entitled Soaring Housing Inequality is now a global political fault line. The dream of owning a home is increasingly out of reach. Democratic and authoritarian governments alike are struggling with the consequences. With the story here today is Alan Crawford, senior editor for International Government and Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Berlin. That's where all the smart, cool kids are, I guess. Alan, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about housing inequality. What's really driving it out there? Well, I think it's probably no surprise to to listeners um, to your show that house prices are are hitting fresh records worldwide um, as a result of the pandemic. And that's that's due to issues like um, ultra-low interest rates, um, the fact that very few homes are actually being built and put on the market. But what is what is new is that this is happening globally and that we're starting to see the political impact of this because it's not just about the, the pure numbers, it's also a generational issue because statistically uh, we know that baby boomers uh, are far more likely to own their own home than millennials and Generation Z. So these, that latter cohort of society risks getting um, completely left behind here. What kind of problems does this mean? I mean? We've all seen soaring home prices, and it's, I have to say, uh, so- sometimes the numbers are pretty shocking. 
uh, 30% increased in the U.S. since the mid-2000s, which, you know, uh, and, and then you were telling me this morning about uh, Boise, Idaho, saw an increase of 28% yeah. in the first quarter of this year alone. What does this mean for politicians, Alan? What does this mean for elections around the world? What does this mean for governments? Well, in the U.S., uh, it means that some of the traditional policies that are uh, that are you traditionally deployed to try and expand um, affordable homes, they risk backfiring. They risk just putting more um, more um, petrol, gasoline on the fire of the housing market. Um, but so that that just exacerbates the existing gulf. But what we're seeing is that there's also a parallel um, crisis in terms of the rental market in many cities, not everywhere, but in many cities. And we see that here in Berlin. Uh, the, the city government is under pressure. And in fact, just last week, um, it bought 15,000 apartments to try and assuage this public anger um, over the rent price increases. A couple of months ago, we saw the collapse of the Swedish government for a variety of reasons, but at its heart were proposed changes to, to rental caps, which were completely out of favour with um, coalition parties and the government collapsed. So the point is, there's no uniform political impact here, but it's, it's really stoking um, uncertainty and in some cases instability. I'm kind of wondering what what's kind of the source of this housing issue on a global scale it's, it seems to me a supply and demand i mean you know what's changed here is there a sudden surge in people looking for residences or is there just a, a supply has come out of the market what's happened there, there are different it, it depends on the market um, but what the, the the single unifying factor is the pandemic, and 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 amid that, as I said, you've got these really low interest rates, which yep. are fueling purchases. Um, you've got this idea that that families are shifting their priorities or have been over the past 18 months in terms of spending with fewer holidays. They're putting more money into real estate, um, fewer homes being built. The, these factors all seem to be coming together at once and and geographically spread around the developed world. That That's really what's new. Well, you've got a lot more investment as well, right, in housing. As people see the prices go up and there's so much – um, cash floating around the system, um, they put that money into housing and that exacerbates the problem. Whereas we haven't been building enough new housing, at least I know that's yep. the case in the U.S. and I know that's the case here in Berlin as well, um, to keep up with, with that demand. I wonder what the answer is, Alan. Um, and I know that this has historically been a real problem to deal with rising Home prices, rising apartment rents. You haven't had um, you haven't had any sort of utopian um, successes where a government figures out a way to keep prices at bay and doesn't you know screw up the whole market. Not as far as I'm aware, but there are interesting examples playing out right now in Canada, where there's, of course, an election today that Justin Trudeau called a snap election, thinking that he would fight this on his handling of the pandemic, which was broadly, um, congrats, he was congratulated for that. Instead, he's fighting on issues of, of affordability and principally of housing. And 
he has uh, proposed um, his proposed solutions include a two-year ban on foreign buyers. But in fact, interestingly, his conservative opponent has the same policy. Um, and the um, the New Democratic Party, the third party polling, they um, are proposing something like a 20% tax on foreign buyers. Um, that, that really the, these kind of like issues that, that these um, what I'm trying to say is that these political parties are broadly sharing the 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 idea that there is some kind of crisis in housing, but they really differ over their proposed solutions. And at the moment, there are, I I am not yet aware of any sustainable fix. You know, one of the issues um, has been, at least in the States, they're just not building entry-level housing stock. They're building the big, big McMansions and things like that. Is that a, a, a an issue we're seeing in other countries as well, Alan? It is. And there's an interesting little example which didn't make it into the final um, article uh, from England, the south of England, which is traditionally uh, it's strongly conservative territory. This is the Conservative Party of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Now, whatever you think of his government, the pro-Brexit stance, it's popular. And However, there was a, a special election, a by-election in a, a, a district which had been held by his party since 1992, and they lost it to the opposition. Alan Crawford with our Big Take story. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.